If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. And we should finish this chapter tonight. I'm planning on finishing it, but not probably, probably not going on to chapter 4. And, you know, we talked about this last week. We've been doing a study in Hebrews. Personally, I'm loving it. I'm loving getting in there and rolling up my sleeve and sort of, you know, I've taught this before uh, in Bible study and in Sunday school to the youth and stuff over the years, but uh, kind of restudying it now and going back over it. And it's, it's just so wonderful. The Lord's Word is so wonderful. I want to pray one more time just for God to give us ears to hear this, this evening. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much, God, for the, the living Word that you've given us, God. And thank you that you speak to your people by it and through it, God. Thank you that it can live in our hearts, God. And we ask that it would, Lord. Give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us tonight, God. And let us be attentive to your voice, Lord, in this house tonight, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, I'm not going back to the beginning. We've, we've covered basically the first six verses of this chapter. But I do want to read this at the beginning where it says in, in the beginning of the chapter, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We need to consider the Lord. We have to consider Jesus in everything that we do, and everything when we're looking for a church building, whatever we're doing, we need to consider the Lord. And it says he was faithful, okay? As Moses was faithful in what God called him to do. And it says, this man, speaking of the Lord, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who built the house, that's the Lord, hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for testimony of those things were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house. And I'm going to stop right there. In the first half of that verse. So, um, the Lord's greater than angels. He, the Lord's greater than Moses. Alright? And, and remember, the, the, these, these Hebrew Christians would have had the pull and the temptation to throw in the towel and go back to their <laughs> Judaism. Even if they didn't think it was right and didn't believe it just because of the pressures that are upon them. It's no different for us, even though we're not Jews and we might not have the same pressures. We have very similar pressures. And so again, the Lord is saying, consider Jesus. He's greater than Moses. All right. Moses foretold and foreshadowed. He was very faithful. It's not a criticism of Moses to say that Jesus is great. Amen. It's not a criticism at all. But the Lord was greater. And Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus was faithful as a son. And he was the creator of all things. Moses didn't build the house of Israel. He didn't build the nation of Israel. He didn't give the law. He received the law. The Lord gave all that. The Lord ordained all that. The Lord uh, created a nation and made a covenant with the man Abraham and so forth. And all that he did and all the things that we saw take place. And still we read it in our Bibles. And I said last week, I'm not an expert on it. I know some. Y'all might know more. But studying like the tabernacle and the temple and the, and the types and shadows of the feast and all that is very interesting. It's significant. You know, we don't go back under that, but we absolutely can learn from that. Because it all points to Jesus. 
his types and shadows. And that's what he says at the end of verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant, servant for a testimony of those things which, which were to be spoken after. He was speaking about the coming of the Lord and the end of the law. The law was finished. The law was completed. The law was fulfilled by Jesus. Okay, and we've talked about that, and we'll get a lot more into it as we go. But here, let's pick up with the second half of verse 6, because this is our topic for tonight. He <clears throat> says that, well, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? Now he's tied it in, not from Moses and Jesus, but to us. We're part of that family of God. We're part of the house of God. It says in First Peter, I believe, that we're built up a spiritual house, right? Uh of living stones and we're put together as a spiritual house, house to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable and well pleasing in his sight. So it's it's uh and then the theme for our church, the cornerstone church, right? We're built upon the foundation, the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we are part of the house of God. We're living stones. It's not physical stones. We look at Israel, they're very physical Natural, and I don't mean natural in the sense of like uh, sinful, I mean just physical people. It's a physical nation. Abraham was a human being. Him and his wife Sarah had a son Isaac, and, and the whole nation came from that and other nations as well. All that is very physical. They possessed the physical land that's still there today. They don't possess all that they had in Joshua's day, but they possessed the land. There's a physical temple, there's parts of it still there. Everything about them uh, was types and shadows of a coming Savior, but their blessings were natural, okay? Ours are, are definitely spiritual. When I say ours, I mean as being as the, the part of the house of Jesus. That tabernacle, that temple, that church of living stones. The Lord doesn't promise us any sure dwelling place in this life. It's not like we're going to take over this geographical area and colonize it. This is the Christian community. There's a, a misunderstanding uh, a lot with that, with the amillennialists and so forth, that uh, that we're going to Christianize the world and we're going to take it over. That basically the church has just replaced Israel with pretty much the same promises and the same future and so forth. And that's a, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, we are sons of Abraham. It says in Hebrews. I mean, in, in, in Romans, we're children, true children of Abraham by faith in God. So spiritually, we're children of Abraham, but we're not Jewish people. We don't have a Jewish land and customs and all that. And so the, all, everything for us now is about evangelizing the world, bringing the gospel to Peru and to Honduras and to Hungary and Foxy's neighborhood and to your neighbors at work. And they get saved and they're part of this house and they're part of this kingdom. And we're not possessing the land still. The Lord's going to come back. The only time we're going to possess a land, and it's going to be, and it's going to be awesome, is when the Lord comes back at the end of the tribulation in the millennial reign, we're actually going to possess the whole earth. And he's going to reign and rule on this physical planet with a rod of iron. And the rule of the Lord and the dominion of the Lord is going to be from sea to sea. It's going to cover the whole planet and we will literally rule a physical people and a physical planet and cities and I don't know how that's going to work exactly but there will be nations still 
functioning during that time. There will be cities. There will be people to rule over and levels of government all under the authority of Jesus, and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful. And so that day's coming, but it's never going to be until the Lord comes back. And, and these um, bad doctrine of, of kingdom now theology, where, again, where it's like we have to get, we have to go out and get the earth subdued. Like it's our job to make people... It's almost a little bit like Calvin, John Calvin, when he, he set up more of a, a, a land, you know, and he, this man, I don't, I'm not an expert on John Calvin, but not only the doctrine of predestination, but Calvinism in his day, it, it was like a lordship, there was like a ruling over that part of the world, and that city and so forth, and they uh, would burn synagogues and, and trying to force people to live by Christianity. It doesn't work. Because everything about Christ and Christianity is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of faith. You can't subdue people into doing that. Now, I do believe that being salt and light, we can have an effect. Let's say Alberto's in a workplace, and and because of Christ in him, maybe this, and I don't know his workplace, but two or three co-workers around him are able to discern the spirit and the presence of Jesus in his life. And it can have an effect, even among unbelievers, in a positive way, to where they might watch their person around it. That's a good thing, okay? It's not going to get them to heaven, but it, but it can have an effect in a positive way. You know, we see it in the, even in the Old Testament with Daniel. You know, and it, the people, even Nebuchadnezzar, said this man has the spirit of the gods in him. You know, there was something about him. In Joseph's day, he found favor in Potiphar's house and in, in Pharaoh's house and so forth. And, and it doesn't mean those people that were around him necessarily became followers of Jehovah. They might have. But anyway, I'll get back to this. It says, whose house are we, verse 6, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoi the rejoicing of hope firm until the end. We, this is where we left off last week. This is not teaching, y'all, because we have to take the whole Bible in context, right? It's not teaching work salvation. It's not saying that Reynolds gives his life to Jesus, but it's Reynolds' responsibility to keep Reynolds saved and to get Reynolds to heaven. That's not what it's saying. It is saying that this is how we're going to make heaven if we hold fast our confidence. It has to do with faith. All through Hebrews, besides saying that Jesus is better than these other things, one of the themes of this book is faith, all right? And so, we're saved by grace through faith. Abraham believed God, believed faith, all right? It was counted unto him for righteousness. We're part of the household of God by faith. We will remain part of the household of God and a child and sons and daughters of the living God by faith in the Lord. If at any point we walk away from the faith, and this is a theme, we're going to talk about it again. I keep saying that in, if we get to chapter 6 and chapter 10, but it's right here as well. Uh, if we hold fast the confidence, if we hold fast our faith in the Lord, and the Lord helps us to do that. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If he doesn't want you to walk away from Him. He's going to make it almost impossible for you to walk away from Him. A sin's not going to take you out of the family of God and make you an apostate. A lot of sins is not going to take you out. Sinning for a long time is not going to take you out. 
All those things could lead to you denying the Lord at some point. All those things could lead to, and probably would, if we didn't repent, lead to us falling away, and that's what apostasy means. But don't fear that you had a spat with your spouse and were rude, or or even something worse. You know, you watch, set your something evil before your eyes and watch something on TV you shouldn't have. What is the answer for that? The answer is confess. We're forgiven. We're washed in the blood of Jesus. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. And we keep right on rolling with the Lord. I, I give the example all the time. I'll give it more as we study this. But this is the thought through the end of the chapter. I have two boys that the Lord's blessed me with. And I'll just totally make this up. If William uh, or, or Peter, one of them just went haywire. They went off the deep end. And they just totally wanted nothing to do with their dad. And they moved to Alaska. And they didn't give me their forward address or number or anything. And just totally estranged for years. Say like 10 years that way. In a natural sense, and there's no relationship, no Father's Day cards, no hanging out, nothing at all. Is he still my son? Absolutely. Is he? Are we having the relationship of father-son? Are we enjoying that relationship that should be there? Absolutely not. But he's still my son. So even if we drift away and we, we get into, we, we sin, which we all do and have since we were saved, God doesn't want us living in fear that, oh no, now I've lost my salvation. I've apostatized. I've fallen away. I said something horrible. I did something horrible. It could bring great shame to Christ and it can sever that relationship, absolute will, with the Lord until it's under the blood, okay? And that's how quickly it can be restored. But you haven't fallen away. The falling away is a turning from the faith. I don't believe this gospel. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want Jesus. I don't want to believe in Jesus. It's not some particular sin that I love now. I simply don't want this anymore. That's a rare thing, thing. I will say that. It's not a lot of what we see, and we say, wow, they apostatized. It's probably more they were never saved, or they're backslidden, and they're going to repent and come back. I think that's far more common, let's put it that way, than somebody knowingly being saved and knowingly saying, I don't want that anymore. I think that would be pretty rare. But having said that, it, everything has to do with we started in this faith and we need to end in this faith. It's based upon our faith. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. What is the end for us as far as faith is concerned? And holding on to that faith. What's the end for every one of us? It's going to be the rapture, right? Faith will end in sight. Or it's going to be when, when we die individually and as believers and go to be with the Lord. I don't believe that if you're a Christian and you're truly born again, remember, the Lord knoweth them that are His, says in, uh, I think, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord knows them that are His. And let's say we know, the Lord knows Sherry's saved. And at this time that the Lord raptures the church, Sherry's in the midst of some ungodly thing that she's doing. Or somebody's in a, in a, drinking in a bar as a believer when the Lord comes back. They're going to go in the rapture. Because He's coming for all of His saints. He's not confused as to who they are. If they're truly born again, they're going. They will be ashamed at His coming, which the Bible says we don't want to be. 
but we don't, we're not saved based on the fact that we're in the bar or out of the bar. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. We're saved by our faith in Him. And so, I firmly believe that. I see that in the Scriptures. So, let's keep going now. He's going to use the Israelites in the wilderness, those that came out of Egypt that were on the way to the Promised Land, the rest of this chapter, to, to make this point. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, this is quoted from Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11, if you're taking notes and you want to see it, because he mentions it three times in the rest of this chapter. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. It actually wasn't one specific day. It was like those days and weeks when they were coming out of, uh, out of Egypt and they had already crossed the Red Sea. Well, once before and then after where they... They provoked the Lord. They they complained. We'll get it. We're going to read some of those in just a minute. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, this is God speaking. Proved me and saw my works forty years. Now, uh, that's an Old Testament and a New Testament um, admonition. Okay, warning for us from the Holy Ghost to not harden what our hearts. Don't harden your hearts. We see the example of Israel, and he's saying it to us. Don't harden your hearts, but hear the voice of the Holy Ghost today. It's always today. God's not saying, you know, you know, Chris, think about this, and, and you can obey me, you can hear me, you can respond to me uh, six, six months from now. If there's something quickened in our hearts by the Holy Ghost from the Word of God or just in our hearts in our prayer time or whatever through a sermon... That's the time to hear and to respond. It may be a delay as far as the fulfillment of a promise that he has or something like that, but the time to say amen to the Lord and to hear his voice is now. And it's always now. It's not later. And it says hear his voice. Hear if you will hear his voice. It doesn't say hear the voice of a popular preacher, of an influential person, of a popular church, of a of a popular Christian book that's out right now, it says if you will hear His voice. And that's the voice we need to listen to. Now I want to read, take the time, because it's worth it, to read some of these uh, examples, these accounts in the Bible. So if you would, keep your spot marked there, but turn back to Exodus chapter 17. Uh, according to one, uh, you know, commentary that I'm reading, there were 11 complaints, 11 specific different complaints or murmurings of Israel in the wilderness. We're not going to go over them all, okay? This would be typical, though. Chapter 17, verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord. They pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. That's a problem, but it's not a reason to complain against God. It's a problem. We need a church building. They said we can't build one in that neighborhood. That's, that's not a reason to complain against God. It's a problem we need to bring before the Lord in prayer, because either he's going to open that door and make a way, and it's going to be wonderful, and one day we'll look back and say, look how he hopped us over all these hurdles, and we're here. Or he's got some other place. I'm not going to stress over it. By God's grace, I'm not. Okay? Um, so there's a problem, but that's not a reason to complain. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses. 
That means like they're striving with Moses and said, uh, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why chide you with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? You're arguing with me, but you're, you're tempting or provoking the Lord. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord. That's what we want to do. Individually and as a church, we want to cry to the Lord. We're going to have problems. We're going to have things that face us that we can't handle and we don't like. But this is what we do. Moses cried unto the Lord saying, What shall I do? unto this people, they'd be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, you know, when they when they crossed the Jordan, uh, the Red Sea. Take it, oh, maybe when, when he smote the, uh, the rivers and they turned blood. But take it in thy hand and go. Before, behold, I will stand before thee, there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come out water, and the people may that the people may drink. And Moses did in the so in sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, and it has to do with like temptation and bitterness and striving against the Lord. That's these names, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, "Is the Lord among us or not?" All right. By this time, they, they had already uh, come across the, uh, the Red Sea. And I believe they'd already come across. Yes, they already come out of the Red Sea. And yet they're complaining and murmuring against the Lord. They'd seen his miracles and they're complaining against God. I want to look at another one. Um, it, it says in, in Numbers chapter 13. Let's look at that one real quick. And while everybody's turning there, can I ask somebody to look at... Psalm 81.7. This one person, if you look up Psalm 81.7, the rest of us numbers 13.25. Now, it says, And they returned from searching the searching of the land after 40 days. This is when Moses, they first got to the brink of the, the Jordan River, on the other side of the Promised Land, the journey had just been a matter of a few weeks. It hadn't taken a long time. All right, so they're right there. Okay, brought us out of Egypt. He drowned Pharaoh and his army, part of the Red Sea. We're here now. We're going to cross the river. We're going to go in. It didn't have to be this long 40-year ordeal. The Lord knew it was going to be, but it didn't have to be. So he sends the spies, one from each tribe, and that includes Joshua and Caleb. They go in for 40 days. They come back. And it says, and when they were come. And, and went, they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh. And they brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told, them, told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. There's a period there. Everything's great. It's just like God said. Nevertheless, the people be strong. The Lord didn't say there wasn't going to be people there. He didn't say there wasn't going to be an enemy there. He said he was going to bring them in. And it was going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. They're strong. Uh, their cities are walled. They're very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak, or the, the giants there. 
The Amalekites dwell in the land, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites dwell there, Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And so here's all their complaint about what's going on there. And pick up in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in the wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were not, were not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. So there's a falling away, right? There's a turning away, there's a turning back from what God has uh, had for them. And y'all, we have to be careful in our own lives and in this, I'm saying in this life of their church, because this is new for us and it's a new beginning and a new start. What if we hit some really bumpy roads? What if somebody that's here tonight is not here next week? You know what I'm saying? I pray that we all are, and I pray we grow together in the Lord. Does that mean the whole thing, we made this huge mistake, and this wasn't God, and we're going to go back? We wouldn't do that in our own natural lives. You understand what I'm saying? With and Individually, I mean, in your walk with God. And so we just need to be careful that there are going to be bumps in the road. There's going to be blessings, and God's going to bring us through. And we need to be okay with that. And, and he, they're all for a purpose. He's not being cruel. Who, who looked up? Did anybody look up that verse in Psalm, Psalms uh, 81 7? I got it. All right. Thou called in trouble, and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah. Okay, I proved thee. That was a place where, where we read with the waters, okay? And it was a proving. And we're going to have provings in our lives. We've had them, you've had plenty in your lives already. And we're going to have more. All that's going to stop when we see the Lord face to face. So just remember that. Okay? Just remember that. So, God takes it seriously, y'all, when we complain and we murmur. He took it seriously with the children of Israel. He wasn't playing. He loved them very much. And like a, like a father pities his children, you know. He, he had pity and compassion on Israel. And he took care of them. But he still takes it seriously. It's one thing to get scared. It's one thing when, when you get the doctor's report, and, oh no, or you get laid off, or something horrible happens, all right? It's to have that fear come in. It's another thing altogether to complain against God. And we have to be careful. What's that? Question? Yes. I don't mean to break your flow. But, uh, so would you say that hard thing is, is it, think the hardening of the heart is a willful rebellion against God and he uses Israel as, as their example. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of the temptation in the wilderness. They harden their hearts against God when they could have cried out to God. And still it's all going to tie into unbelief. It's going gonna, it's gonna to all turn to they didn't believe God. They didn't trust God and they should have. That's a big thing y'all. It's one thing not to believe God, 
if we didn't have any evidence of anything at all or no testimony of the Lord. You know what I mean? It's another thing when you have what you have and still not believe. That is, uh, that is a willful disobedience. And, and uh, Paul said, deliver me from unreasonable men. You know, and all men have not faith. But it's our fault if we don't. So the hardening of the heart is, is, a, is a given the evidence. All right. Let's just say in the Bible says in Romans chapter one that in creation God has displayed his, his even his Godhead in eternal power. It's two big things that God says just in creation he has displayed or made known the Godhead that there's this deity a Godhead. All right and what I say is displayed as Godhead and His power in creation. That all men can take note of that and respond to that to some degree. It may not be enough just in that by itself for them to be born again and call the name of Jesus, but it is enough in that to display God's Godhead and power that is real and for them to begin seeking after God. Because if they'll seek after God, then they're going to find God. So that's the point. And Israel, who much is given, much is required. They saw the Lord's work for 40 years. They watched with their little ones tucked up under their arms, turned around, and they got across on dry land and turned around and watched Pharaoh with the chariots of iron pursuing after them, drowned. And yet they still don't trust God. That's wicked. That's not... Oh, well, let's give them a little bit more evidence in them, they'll believe. You know that story in Luke where, where Jesus says, uh, that, you know, the rich man and Lazarus died, and the, and the rich man's, you know, in hell, and he says, send back Lazarus, who was in Abraham's bosom, to, to tell my brothers on earth, I got five brothers on earth, go send him back to tell them. And, and Abraham says, no, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear them, they're not going to believe even if one comes back from the dead. That's not just unbelief. That's wicked. That's sinful. And so this, that's to me, is the hardening of the heart. And so here we go. And, and they're, they're there. And God takes it seriously. And all the soldiers, all those that were 20 years and older, died in the wilderness. Now, it took a while. It took 40 years, Right? And it says their carcasses, we hadn't read it yet, but their carcasses fell in the wilderness. So I think of carcasses like it's an animal. You know, you got old deer carcass laying up here or whatever. And that's how he's speaking about them, as opposed to other scriptures like precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It just has always struck me that he's, he's really angry with them. He loved them, but he's angry with them. Let's keep reading. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. God had a rest for them. It was a journey, they've been slaves, then a journey, quick journey it could have been, and enter into a real place of rest once they possessed the promised land. He had it for them. He was going to give it to them. And he sweared that these people would not. They're not going to enter into my rest. And guess what? They didn't. <laughs> they, they wandered. They literally wandered. You've heard the term wandering Jew. You know, I think there's a plant called the wandering Jew. Because they wandered from place to place. They would stay in this place for a little while. 
And then God would say, it's time to pack up and move. And they'd go, and he'd say, he'd say you circle this mountain long enough, it's time for you to go here. But still, they're just out in the wilderness. And sometimes they even go back to places they had been before. They're not making progress, okay? But what are they doing? They're dying. One by one, they're dying and having funerals out there in the wilderness till every single one of them died after 40 years. Now, only two left well, was Joshua and Caleb. Moses died. The Lord buried him up on the mountain overlooking the promised land. But Joshua and Caleb were the only two they got to go in because when the spies brought that what the Bible calls an evil report from the land, ten spies brought an evil report. All they could look at was the trouble, the giants, the walled cities. God brought us out here to kill us. Now they turn from the trouble to blaming God. And the two, uh, Joshua and Caleb said, no, time out, y'all. They could they're ripping their clothes. They want to stop the people and say, look, we can easily take it. If God's pleased with us, we can take it today. There's no problem at all. And it says that they brought word as was in their heart. Because that was in their heart. It wasn't just positive thinking. It was in their hearts. That's why it says, harden not your heart. These two men, in their hearts, they believed, like Moses, that God could bring them in. That's an awesome thing. I want to be like that, you know? I want to believe God like that. I don't always, but I want to. So he swears they're not going to go, and he was grieved with this nation and with this generation. That means he was offended. He was wroth. He was over-the-top angry. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, here again, the admonition is for us. It's not just Israel, and we say, shame on them. Can you believe they did that? God brought them through the Red Sea, and they still doubted God. It's an it's a admonition to us, all right? An evil heart of unbelief. I know we said this, but unbelief is a sin. Romans, uh, where did I have it? Romans 14, 23. Therefore, whatever is not of faith is sin. So it's not just this benign thing where it's kind of neutral. Some believe, some don't believe. Some have had a little more evidence given to them than others. And it's just kind of neutral. It's not. Faith or unbelief is not neutral. It's a sin if we don't believe because God has given us the evidence that we need. Somebody brought you the gospel and we become responsible for that. How we hear it, how we receive it, what we do with it. The Holy Ghost is at work dealing with our hearts and lives, and we need to respond. And so it's an evil heart. When, and I've always thought it interesting when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it's talking about the uh, after the millennium, and there's the lake of fire, and whoever's, uh, whoever's names aren't written in the Lamb's book of life, they're cast in the lake of fire. And it talks about, it begins to list those people that didn't know the Lord, they're going. And in the beginning of the last list, it says they're fearful and unbelieving. That's the top of the list. Fearful. They're going to hell. I mean, they're going to a lake of fire forever. Fearful and unbelieving. And then it says, you know, murderers and adulterers, sorcerers and all this. It lists them all. But the top two in the list are fearful and unbelieving. It's serious to God. Because how can he show... How can I prove to my wife anymore 
I'm sure I could do a better job, or to my children anymore, that I love them, that I'm faithful to them. You know, understand what I'm saying? That I want what's best for them, that I'm, I care for them. Well, that's a pitiful example because I may be pitiful as a human, but how much more does he not prove his love and his faithfulness? And when he does all that and we still say, oh, God brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. He literally said that. We read it. He brought us out here because he's cruel and he's mean. He wants to kill us like like some somebody playing on an ant pile that wants to poke and toy with these little critters. You know what I mean? Because he can do whatever he wants to them. And, and they can't fight back. That's, it's almost like the picture that they're painting of God. That's wicked because he's not that way. Moses didn't think he was that way. Moses had the same problems. He got thirsty too. You know what I'm saying? He got hungry too. The sun beat on his head. He was hot too. He was tired of wandering around too. But the difference was he turned it to the Lord. He turned it to the Lord and called upon the Lord. And we need to be that way, y'all. Uh, it says, Take heed that there not be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Demas has forsaken me. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas walked with Paul, and in the context of Christ, and walked with the Lord, and the servant of the Lord. At some point in Paul's life, when he's in Rome, about to be beheaded, he said, Demas has forsaken me. Well, what was it? He's forsaken me and departed, having loved this present world. He will love worldliness. He went back to it, like a dog to his vomit. That's a turning away. That's a falling away. And the Bible says that, uh, you know, in the last time perilous times are going to come, and it says that, uh, that, that men, some are going to depart from the faith, from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. It's very clear. They're going to do that. You can get an argument about individuals, were they really saved or not, but just in the overall picture there, some will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And in so doing, they will leave the faith. So at some point, they had to be in the faith to leave it, right? And, and that's kind of the picture here. <clears throat> that's the warning to us as well. Instead, believers are admonished to exhort one another, provoke one another, spur one another on daily while it's called today. Once a week's not enough. Once in a lifetime is not enough. Well, I gave my life to Christ, and that should suffice. We won't make it very long. As far as, you know what I mean? We need that spiritual nourishment. Give me this day a daily bread. I need it t today. And today, while well, it's called today. So provoke one another. And it says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. We might study that sometime more in depth. Sin is not just sin. It is sin. It has consequences and effects of sin. It's a separation from God. It's missing the mark. It's all those things. But another characteristic of sin is that it's deceitful. It is not at all what it appears to be. You know, in the Proverbs where it talks about the, the guy who's like a dumb ox and he's just going into the adulterous woman. I mean, at the time, it looks real appealing. But it's stupid. And the Bible's calling him a fool. You're an idiot. That's literally what he's saying. And wisdom is crying out in the street. Listen, you're, you're actually heading to your own death. Wake up and see it. But sin is deceitful. So it appears like 
this is, boy, this is going to just satisfy me. This is going to bring all the joy and pleasure. And then you step over that line. It's sin. And there's no good thing that comes from sin. He's setting a trap for his own. So he's going to pierce his own heart through with a spear or sword by going into this adulterous woman. It doesn't mean that people can't be forgiven of sins, even adultery. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's a deceitfulness of sin. Uh, and, and it never is what it appears. Okay? It never is what it appears. And, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead us. That, that's, that's its appeal. Is that it paints a picture, but it doesn't provide that. I don't care what the sin is. Lying, cheating on income taxes, adultery, whatever it may be, it's sin against God. Don't forget God when you're sinning. He's in that picture somewhere, okay? And He's going to be part of it. There's a deceitfulness to it. And if our hearts are hardened, then we don't see it. We're blinded to that truth. And how do you think, how did so-and-so do such and such? I can't believe they did that. Well, their hearts were hardened at some point to thinking they would be an exception to the rule and they would get away with it. They're not. Okay? They're not. And neither am I, neither are you. We can bring it and be under the blood, but there's still a deceitfulness. So I'm going to finish up this, this chapter. <clears throat> For we are made partakers of Christ. That word partaker, we talked about it last week. Partakers of Christ, it means an associate and a partner. We're going to read it more in this, uh, in this book. If we hold the beginning of our confidence, see here we the same thing, our, the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. It's just like chapter, I mean verse 6, end of verse 6, if. And it's here we go, the confidence steadfast unto the end. And so the way you came into this thing was, was by faith. And through our relationship with Almighty God was by faith. The way we're going to live, the just shall live by faith. The way we're going to go out and see Jesus face to face one day is going to be by faith. That doesn't change. It never was by works at any point of that. True faith will produce works. True faith will be evident by our works. But the works don't produce the faith. The faith produces the works. And the faith brings the salvation. And you've heard it said before we were saved. You know, whatever day Buck prayed the sinner's prayer and meant it and gave his life to the Lord, he could say, I was saved on that day. He was. But it's also not wrong to say we're being saved, that God's preserving us through this life. You know what I mean? He's brief. We're still living. We're still wrestling temptations and things and overcoming. We're being saved and we're going to be saved when we see the Lord face to face. Even the saving of your souls, it talks about, Peter talks about. So we hold fast our confidence, our faith, steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, verse 15, If you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Um, that word provocation just simply means provoke to wrath or bitterness. Uh, for some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all, because Joshua and Caleb didn't, all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It doesn't say they couldn't enter in because they did this sin or that sin, or they complained or murmured. Those sins were a result of unbelief. 
and they never repented and said, God, forgive us. We, we grumbled and complained. Have you ever grumbled and complained? I have. God hates it. But we still can be forgiven. The reason they didn't enter, enter to the rest that God had for them was because of unbelief. And so I'm going to close with just a few thoughts here that um, their unbelief kept them from, and we can fill in the blank, their unbelief kept them from God's rest, and it was going to be wonderful. Yeah, they had to fight, and they would have to take the land like Joshua and Caleb. It kept them from the promised land, and it's, it kept them from the, God's blessings. Unbelief still keeps us from blessings of God. Even if we're saved, and God calls us to something, and we're scared, and we don't step out and do it, it keeps us from something. Maybe not from salvation, but unbelief, even in other areas, uh, God wants you to go knock on your neighbor's door and tell them about Jesus. And on unbelief, we don't do it. You know, it kept us from something. Kept us. Maybe God will send somebody else and they'll get to win them to the Lord. Maybe it was just a test for me. Maybe they never would give their lives to the Lord, but God wanted me to go anyway to tell them that He loved them. You know what I'm saying? Either way, I missed out. And it was a test for me of faith. And we've all probably failed in those areas before and had to say, God, forgive me. Please give me another chance. Give me another opportunity. And he does graciously do that. But uh, the, the, I'm going to close with, with these thoughts right here. Israel's unbelief, and I got this from, from a commentary, and I, and I liked it. It says their, un, their unbelief had a fourfold provocation. So their unbelief in God in, provoked the Lord in four different ways. And they, over, they all overlap, so they kind of all go together. First of all, it was an, their unbelief was an assault on His truth. An assault on His truth. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and God is truth, okay? The devil's a liar and the father of lies. And they, make, they made God out to be a liar because God made them a promise that I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to bring you in. Bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey. And they said, no, he brought us out here to kill us. He can't bring us in. There's giants there. He can't do it. Or he can't feed us meat out here. And so God sends the quail, you know, all that. Or the different things. Or we're going to die of thirst out here. When he says, no, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. They were making God out to be a liar. He wasn't a liar. They made him out to be a liar. So it was an assault on, their, on his truth. Second of all, it was assault on his power. And I said these overlap. Because they're saying he is unable to do it. And we didn't study that complaint. But when they said, we're sick of this manna. We're sick of it. We loathe it, they said. Manna, I mean, Moses didn't loathe it. They loathed it. They, said, I mean, they absolutely detested it. And they shouldn't have. You know what I mean? And they said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can he give us meat out here in the middle of nowhere? Well, God sent them what they wanted, but it wasn't what they wanted. You understand what I mean? They were grumbling and complaining, and they gorged themselves to death on quail flesh. And it says while it was still in their teeth, and they were chewing on it, they started dropping dead. 
There's a deceitfulness to sin. It provoked God. And in their provocation, that assault on his truth and on his power, God can't bring us in. And he did. He, he, he could. It had a, uh, an assault or provocation on his character, his goodness. He's not good God. He's an evil God. If you ever, and we're about to close, just it's literally just a minute here, but have you ever had any opportunity or any circumstance in your life as a Christian where you've literally thought in your mind, you might not put words to it, tell anybody, God, what this wasn't good. This God was wrong in this. This wasn't wrong, right. I can't believe He let so and so get away with this. This was wrong. We have to be careful of that. I've done it. I do it. I need to be careful of that. Because he's God and I'm not. And I don't know everything like I think I do. I'm limited in this little bitty sight that I have. And that's an attack on his goodness. It's an attack on his goodness. The Bible says, I keep reminding myself in Psalm 119, I forgot the exact verse, I think verse 68. Thou art good and doest good, David said. You're good. And you do good. Okay? That kind of sums it up, right? So, I don't think this is right. That God did this, and it doesn't seem fair. And the psalmist Asaph, I think in Psalm, I forgot which Psalm, 73 maybe, or somewhere in there, he says, My feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And they're, you know, they just get away with murder, basically, and I'm serving God, and I'm afflicting myself, and, and things are going bad for me. And God smote his heart. He said, and I was envious of the wicked. He says, until, praise God, it didn't end there. Until I went to the house of God and I saw their end. God showed them the end of what those people were going to be like. He wasn't envious anymore. Don't you be envious of the wicked. All right? They're not getting away with anything. God is patient. Praise God, he is. Maybe they're going to get saved. You know, whereas we would have already sent them to hell. And so it's an attack on his goodness and unfortunately... It's an attack upon his immutability. In other words, God says, I'm the Lord, I change not. And at one point, they might have thought, he's a good God, he cares for us, he's bringing us out, but now he's changed. Something's different about him now because we're thirsty. Something's different now because we have giants in the land, and we weren't prepared for that. So somehow God has changed from the good God, and the all-knowing God that brought us out, and he's changed, and he's not that anymore. None of those things are true. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. And that's what we need to rest upon. Y'all turn with me. We're close with one scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The, yeah, you can come on up to if you would. Let's pick up verse 1. We're going to read a little passage. We're closing. Our altars are going to be open. If you just want to pray for God to, to strengthen your faith or maybe confess to the Lord for doubting, well, let's read this passage, 10.1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud, under Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock and that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. To the intent, we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. 
neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down as with the golden calves to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that think he stands take heed lest he fall. I'm going to just close with that. And so it's a sober warning. God's not just writing the history of Israel and all their complaints so he can make them look bad. He's writing it. It says all these things were written for our admonition. He can just let it go and be kind of forgotten from, you know, the history of or the chronicles of man. He could just we, we don't even remember what happened with those Jews. But he tells us specifically, and he repeats it in the Psalms, and he repeats it here in First Corinthians and in Hebrews. And these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come, that we wouldn't fall into the same mindset. It's more of a mindset to grumble and complain in an evil heart of unbelief. Maybe not their specific sins, but it's the same attitude towards God. And so we're just going to close chapter 3. We'll start chapter 4 next week. But these going to play. Again, let's, let's strive to have an altar and just let God take this word and make it part of us. We don't want to be forgetful hearers of the word and doers of the word. And Lord, I just confess, I come before you that and, and, and confess that I have grumbled. I have complained. I've doubted your goodness. I've doubted your power. I've done it recently, God. And I ask not only that you would forgive me, God, but I ask that you would change me and strengthen my faith and all of our faith, God. And tomorrow we'll need it strengthened even more, God. But tonight we're calling upon you while you may be found. And Lord, we want to learn from these things. We want to we want to learn. I don't want an evil heart of unbelief. It's evil. I don't want to bring accusations against the holy God and the good God. You sent your son Jesus when I didn't even know you. When we were strangers and pilgrims from you, we were enemies of the cross and enemies of God. You died for us, Lord. You have proved your love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, those words that you've written us, to us are for our faith to be strengthened. Thank you for the study of your word, God. I don't at all think I'm any better than these Jews that died in the wilderness, God. I thank you for the blood of Jesus. I thank you for forgiveness. And even though I may have sinned in similar ways, I don't have to stay in that sin, God. I can come out of it. I can be strengthened. I want to be like Moses. I want to be like Joshua and Caleb. They brought word again as it was in their heart. It was in their heart, God. Faith in God was in their heart. Even to face giants and walled cities, God. We're going to face giants in our lives. We're living in these last days. We're going to face those things. I believe we are. And God, I pray that it would be in our hearts like Joshua and Caleb to fight the giants that we are facing and are going to face. And our children's faith would be built up and they would be able to face those giants, God. We love you and we thank you tonight, God. In 
do this in us. We need you, Father. We're totally dependent upon you to do this in us and for us, God. In Jesus' name.